Chapter 57 Of whales in paint, in teeth, in wood, in sheet iron, in stone, in mountains, in stars. On Tower Hill, as you would go down to the London docks, you may have seen a crippled beggar, or kedger, as the sailors say, holding a painted board before him, representing the tragic scene in which he lost his leg. There are three whales and three boats, and one of the boats, presumed to contain the missing leg in all its original integrity, is being crunched by the jaws of the foremost whale. Any time these ten years, they tell me, has that man held up a picture and exhibited that stump to an incredulous world. But the time of his justification has now come. His three whales are as good whales as ever were published in Wapping, at any rate, and his stump as unquestionable a stump as any you will find in the western clearing. But though forever mounted on that stump, never a stump speech does the poor whalemaker make, but, with downcast eyes, stands ruefully contemplating his own amputation. Throughout the Pacific, and also in Nantucket and New Bedford and Sag Harbor, you will come across lively sketches of whales and whale scenes, graven themselves on sperm whale teeth or ladies' busks wrought out by the right whalebone, and other like skirmishander articles. As the whalemen call the numerous little ingenious contrivances they elaborately carve out on the rough material in their hour of ocean leisure, some of them have little boxes of dentistical-looking implements, specifically intended for the scrimshandering business. But in general, they toil with their jackknives alone, and with that almost omnipotent tool of the sailor, they will turn you to anything you please, in the way of a mariner's fancy. Long exile from Christendom and civilization inevitably restores a man to that condition in which God placed him, i.e., what is called savagery. Your true whale hunter is as much a savage as an Iroquois. I myself am a savage, owing no allegiance but to the king of the cannibals, and ready at any moment to rebel against him. Now, one of the particular characteristics of the savage in his domestic hours is his wonderful patience of industry— in ancient Hawaiian war club and spear paddle, in its full multiplicity and elaboration of carving, is as great a trophy of human perseverance as a Latin lexicon. For, but with a bit of broken seashell or shark's tooth, that miraculous intricacy of wooden network has been achieved, and it has cost steady years of steady application. As with the Hawaiian savage, so with the white sailor savage. With the same marvelous patience, and with the same single shark's tooth of his one poor jackknife, he will carve you a bit of bone structure, not quite as workmanlike, but as close-packed in its maziness of design as the Greek savage, Achilles' shield, and full of barbaric spirit and suggestiveness as the prince of the fine Dutch savage, Albert Durer. Wooden whales or whales cut in profile out of the small dark slabs of the noble South Sea war wood are frequently met with in the forecastle of American whalers. Some of them are done with much accuracy. At some old gabled roof country house, you will see brass whales hung by the tail for knockers to the roadside door. When the porter is sleepy, the anvil-handed whale would be best. But these knocking whales are seldom remarkable as faithful essay. On the spires of some old-fashioned churches you will see sheet-iron whales placed there for weathercocks, but they are so elevated, and besides that are all intents and purposes so labeled with hands-off, you cannot examine them closely enough to decide upon their merit. In bonny, ribby regions of the earth, where at the base of the high broken cliffs masses of rock lie strewn in fantastic groupings upon the plain, you will often discover images as the petrified form of the leviathan partly merged in grass, 
which of a windy day breaks against them in a surf of green surges. Then again, in mountainous countries where the traveler is continuously girdled by amphitheatrical heights, here and there, from some lucky point of view, you will catch passing glimpses of the profiles of whales defined along the undulating ridges. But you must be a thorough whaleman to see these sights, and not only that, but if you wish to return to such a site again, you must be sure and take the exact intersecting latitude and longitude of your first standpoint, else so chance-like are such observations of the hills that your precise previous standpoint would require a laborious rediscovery, like the Solomon Islands, which still remain incognita, though once high-ruffed Medana trod them and old Figueroa chronicled them. Nor, when expanding lifted by your subject, can you fail to trace out great whales in the starry heavens, and boats in pursuit of them, as when, long filled with thoughts of war, the eastern nations saw armies locked in battle among clouds. Thus, at the north, I have chased Leviathan round and round the pole with the revolutions of the bright points that first defined him to me. And beneath the effulgent Antarctic skies, I have boarded the Argonavis, and joined the chase between the starry Cetus, far beyond the utmost stretch of Hydrus and the flying fish. With a frigate's anchors for my brittle bit, and faces of harpoons for spurs, would I could mount that whale and leap the topmost skies, to see whether the fabled heavens, with all their countless tents, really lie encamped beyond my mortal sight. Thanks for listening to Moby Dick Pod. If you've liked what you've heard so far, consider subscribing or leaving us a rating on Apple Podcast. And as always, thanks for listening.